slow train coming, David. There's a slow train coming. We live in societies that are increasingly unable to gain common consent and purpose among their populations and have to resort to yet more authoritarian measures to create the simulacrum or illusion that this consent is there. At the same time, our elites are characterized by audacity. They keep things from us, of course, but they are just as often willing to tell the truth outright, smugly knowing that dissenters will be ignored or crushed, often to the applause of those who see themselves as the regime's greatest critics. We've got some remarkable news stories this week that have reflected just this situation. Unfortunately, you people have got the popular show to help make sense of it all. I'm James A. Smith, and this man this is... This is David Slavic, and we want you to know that when we say you people, we mean it in every way that you think is bad, and every way you think it's good. We love you. Yeah, both of those things. We love the Sublation Media YouTube audience, and it's great to be in the fifth of our weekly teleprogram slots uh, for you guys. It's great to be talking to our regular uh, podcast audience as well. And a special thanks to the Patreon subscribers. We especially love you, the people who keep the show going uh, and keep supporting us. Our newest patrons are Dan M, Anthony, Kath, and Adrian B. And you good people are going to be enjoying exclusive uh, stuff from our back catalogue, the only show that brought you Ben Burgess debating Peter Hitchens on the legacy of Christopher Hitchens, the only show to bring you the post-left versus the verso-left debate on whether neoliberalism is over with Paolo Gabaldo and Elena Lang, and the only show that spoke to Sunetra Gupta and Carl Hennigan about what it was like advising the UK government uh, on lockdown. That and loads more, all the extended interviews from our recent shows for Sublation it's all up there. Uh, so we hope you'll consider helping us uh, over at Patreon. Um, but if that's not your bag, you can also make a one-off donation uh, on our PayPal. Uh, just look up the popular show. That helps a great deal as well. Um, but enough of the ad. We've got uh, a bit of a show ahead. But how are you, David? How's it going, man? It's, uh, it's been a tremendous time in Newfoundland. We've had... Uh whales jumping in our, our front yard uh not in the yard per se uh, in the ocean that's about 50 yards away uh, we have uh been you know exploring the areas uh, ex experiencing uh you know 20 degree weather which is uh you know quite odd for us here uh just two weeks ago it was snowing so we are uh feeling good and ready to roll uh, I'm feeling good as well. Uh, I haven't mm, spoken to you for a, a couple of weeks now but last weekend I was down in Bristol uh in the, the the southwest of england at bristol transformed and i've got to give a shout out to those guys this was a great festival of activism and left-wing thoughts also a great deal of uh, debate as well uh, the transformed festivals are sort of spin-offs from uh, the world transformed which was the momentum festival that was set up alongside uh, the Labour conferences when Corbyn was Labour leader. That's still going, but maybe the, the most important afterlife uh, or that has now is the fact that it, it's still providing a base for local debate and local um, organising. So, yeah, that was a great pleasure to speak to those guys down in Bristol, uh, and I want to thank them. Um, but let's hear from your former presidents. This uh, was one of the sort of jaw-dropping moments of the week i think this was george w bush uh, and i'm gonna play the clip and let him speak for himself 
Russian elections are rigged. Political opponents are imprisoned or otherwise eliminated from participating in the electoral process. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. <laughs> Iraq, too. Anyway. Uh, 75. Uh, Astonishing. I, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, 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 as someone who has spent a lot of time vilifying George W. Bush and, and really um, am of that era, you know, I, I graduated law school in uh, 2003. Um, I was briefly on a list of dissenters the, under DHS because I took my, I was a, a law school librarian uh, as part-time during law school and I was taking a break and I sat at an anti-war meeting that just was outside the law school and found out later uh, through a FOIA request that I was on a list for some time where I had to take my pants off every time I got on an airplane. Um, I have no love for this man. However, I will say there is um something pre-internet or pre-social media about the way he approaches the world yeah. that is refreshing in some sort of nostalgic way um he's a villain you know mm -hmm. nearly a hundred thousand civilians died in world in the iraq war he's a liar he's he was voted into office twice through nefarious means uh you know some rigging probably in ohio and the second election uh the brooks brothers riots in Florida and you know the judicial mm -hmm. coup that we had in the Supreme Court. Um, I don't know how to feel about this. I'll be honest, because it's everything I always do all in one moment. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's incredible. It's uh, you're absolutely right that it's a sort of blast from the pre uh, Internet uh, past. And, and, and it's a t yeah, he's a figure of a totally different media ecosystem. And the way uh, he he makes the slip of the tongue, uh, he, he's he's building up to say Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, uh, and somehow he's heard about the illegal invasion of Iraq so many times. He's thought about it so many so many times. Uh, he did the damn thing, and the word Iraq comes out instead of the word Ukraine. Um, and yet, it's that mastery of being able to totally own the moment and get two big laughs from the audience, uh, first uh, by saying Iraq 2 in a slightly puzzling um, aside. That I'm curious about what you made of that. Um, and then by saying I'm 75. And, and he's got them in the palm of his hand. This is a, this is a president of the, of the live performance, not a president who was always kind of looking at how this was going to go down online. This is uh, a, a guy who holds a room in the palm of his hand and this was yeah a, a, a complete kind of um uh, throwback to the way that he was always making these ridiculous slips of the tongue these um kind of you know mixing up of words uh, famous examples about like how people misunderestimated him um the the yeah the famous bushisms but it, it was a reminder of how he was always able to use this evidence that, you know, he was kind of a dumb guy uh, to his benefit and always kind of immediately step into the joke and be in on the joke. He, he, he was never the object of 
um, of ridicule in the way that he might have been. And it, it's actually like quite a striking contrast with with Trump, another idiosyncratic speaker. Trump has absolutely no self-irony. Uh, when Trump says the wrong thing or, or lets on more than he should do or um, says some kind of um, faux pas in a speech, reality molds around it and he just plows on as if it's what he'd already uh, always intended to say. And the political messaging, the ideology, the crowd has to mold around it and catch up. Whereas Bush was quite a different uh, presentational creature in that regard but but what about that iraq too what, what did that mean <laughs> you know it's uh it's very interesting because it could be you could there's two ways you could look you could say iraq as well or iraq too mm -hmm. and um if it's iraq too for russia it's it's in the, the the number two you know or the sequel you know it could be quite disastrous for them we see where we are today oh, shit, yeah. yeah you know uh but if you think about it from you know the more obvious reading, the plain reading, if we're going to get into that sort of uh, approach, uh, it's it is he's admitting it, and I think that Bush's and his father as well have always been uh, through some sort of uh, patrician paternalism, telling the truth while speaking the lie, and I, I think that that is a part of some the approach of a certain sort of sect of people, uh, you know, and I, I would say this is English in a way. Uh, where they're just saying, like, you know, we are screwing you, and, and you, you know, but uh, we're, we're in charge. Uh, Trump ignored that in many ways, where he mm -hmm. he wanted you to believe that he was doing the best for you. I think Obama was in many ways that, you know, uh, Obama believed that he was doing the best for you. You know, I, I think he truly did believe it. He was a true believer. Um, whether Trump believed that or not, I don't know. Uh, but I think you're seeing something that's happening time and time again. And I'm going to connect it to something that um, we had we had talked before the show a little bit about this, but I, I hadn't mentioned this. Uh, there was recently a discussion by Steve Schmidt, who was uh, a campaign manager or one of the campaign managers for um, John McCain in 2008. He worked on the Bush uh, campaign prior to that, uh, was, you know, instrumental in some of the dirty tricks of the Bush campaign. But he still felt himself to be sort of above the fray. Um, we have I have friends of friends with Steve Schmidt, you know, just through, you know, knowing people who got into politics from college and who eventually became Republicans. Sometimes you had, you know, you'd have wine and cheese with them. You just don't talk about that kind of stuff. But uh, he does. And people do feel that he's a pretty good guy. Recently, he criticized Meghan McCain, who had been very hard on him for being disloyal uh, for many years to his father um, because he had brought on uh, his, her father had brought on uh, Sarah Palin, who was many, in many ways, the, the predecessor to Trump. And in this discussion, it was on Politico and we can post the link um, on our Twitter. Uh, they discussed, you know, sort of how betrayed he felt and, all, you know, that I was a truth teller, all these types of things. Many of these people do feel, despite their mis, you know, their misdeeds, that they are doing the best that they can. Uh, and I mm -hmm. think that many, much of this politics does require people think that. I think we're beyond that now, and I think a lot of these people have now, you know, sort of internalized that you know they're part of something bigger that it's not about them or not about the American people. And I think Bush is is showing that. Yeah, and part of the shocking thing of uh, what he said there. And then what he joked about was that it is precisely the position on Ukraine that um, has been the object of the most McCarthyite 
uh, attacks. You, you are absolutely not allowed to suggest that the US and NATO uh, may have no moral credibility whatsoever when it comes to criticizing Russia and when it comes to uh, escalating this war precisely because of Iraq and much else. Uh, you, you can get kicked out of the Labour Party for believing that at this point. Uh, and it, it, you know, what, what previously would have been a perfectly normal anti-war position um, has, uh, as when expressed by both the dissident left and dissident right, has been um, has been framed as some sort of heresy. But here we have the guy who actually did it, uh, not only you know accidentally letting slip uh, in his speech that it was so, but joking about it, like the audience knows. Iraq yeah. too. Yeah, of course everything I just said applies to Iraq, and that's kind of funny. He acknowledges the, the comedy of the whole uh, situation. So, um, yeah, you, you've, got, you've got W... Um, actually admitting precisely what um, a great deal of propaganda and intimidation, even from within the left, uh, thinking of people like Paul Mason and uh, John, John, uh, uh, George Monbiot, uh, who, who have, have you know, taken part in this kind of huge McCarthyism about it. So uh, I, have a, I have a really, uh, I'm going to ask you a question. I've thought about this a lot, and, I, and I'm sorry to interrupt because I think you're on a roll, but I have to ask, is this sort of, adherence to sort of NATO or sort of loyalty to NATO and this requirement of internal sort of loyalty and sort of a litmus test for being proper in labor. Do you think that that's just like a hangover for Brexit? Do you think that this is a, you know, because the the, the Johnson administration has been sort of like, uh, the Johnson government has been associated in the Trump government and was associated with sort of being soft on Russia, the donors mm. to the Tories, et cetera, et cetera. Is this sort of a, are we just going through the motions of Brexit and Russiagate over and over again? Is that, is it, is it sort of like, um, you know, just like we're going to talk about later with monkeypox, is this just sort of the hangover from the, the previous trauma? Yeah, that's very interesting because so much of the polarization in the US uh, over Russia, Ukraine does come from that Russiagate affair. And we've covered that a fair bit in the two episodes that we made uh, with Michael Tracy, um, one at the very start of the invasion. Um, in the UK, it's slightly different. Um, Boris Johnson was in some ways inoculated from the accusations about Russian collusion that marked the Trump presidency, even though the narrative was that both Brexit and Trump's victories had been the will of Russia, mm -hmm. um, Boris Johnson had the convenience of both Nigel Farage and Jeremy Corbyn um, being part of the political uh, political ecosystem, uh, which meant that Farage could sort of absorb a lot of the accusation of Russian collusion, deflecting it from Boris Johnson, who was, in a lot of ways, managed to stay a kind of more respectable figure in the way that he was generally kind of viewed by the media class. And then there was Jeremy Corbyn, who, despite the fact that it is the Tory party that has um, 
you know, that's up to its waist in Russian money uh, and um, dealings with uh, Russian billionaires. Um, the, the idea that Jeremy Corbyn was soft on Russia or sympathetic to, to Putin, um, not based on very much at all, uh, was, was the other sort of way in which those kind of, the, the possibility of accusing Boris of being pro-Russia in the way that Trump was accused of being pro-Russia, it didn't really happen. Uh, for those reasons. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it continues to be the case that uh, Boris Johnson has generally sidestepped um, those kind of accusations in the way that Trump and uh, the people who have kind of come up under him and after him have not in the yeah. States. Now, I, I'm going to go back to the States and, and talk about the squad, and I'm going to talk about mm -hmm. Bernie for a second. Um, if you look at the, if you go back to the Russia Gate sort of analysis of 2016, one of the things that some of the people who were largely associated with this centrist of the Democratic Party who supported Hillary Clinton did is to talk about how Bernie was getting support from Russia. And that is what, one of the reasons that was ultimately led to uh, Hillary Clinton losing. Um, and I think, and I thought at the time, I said, you know, I don't really understand why they're doing this. What What's the point of this? And then I thought about it in sort of the, the European party sense. And this was a disciplinary action. It essentially created us an environment where in the future, if they needed to whip things around foreign policy that went against the core values of these people, the squad and Bernie, you know, and Bernie's a little more of a hawk than I think all of us would like to admit. Yeah. But his team would have been much more, you know, working towards peace, working towards, you know, sort of shared agreements, understandings, uh, you know, avoiding sort of foreign entanglements. Bernie voted for the 40 billion for Ukraine. The squad yep. all voted unanimously for the 40 billion. The yep. only people who got to step out of that were the people who, you know, couldn't have escaped it either way. The people who were the Trumpers, they could they couldn't escape that taint either way. So why wouldn't they vote for it? Yeah. So Josh Hawley, Rand Paul, Marjorie Taylor Greene, yeah. uh, Matt Gates, Madison Cawthorn, uh, all of them voted against. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mean, we, we've we've done a, a couple of shows talking to um, our friends over at the American Conservative about the uh, American Conservative movements anti anti Putinism. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it, it, it can't be ignored that it is the distant right that has held out much more than the distant left on uh, this this issue uh, this time round. Yeah, and I th I think you're you're seeing that sort of you know, and I I don't I don't know if people are just watching what other people are doing, but you get, you can see this being repeated time and time again. Whether it's accusations of anti-Semitism for being supportive of Palestine or if it's uh, about, you know, the fear of being tainted as a, a supporter of Putin, you are seeing these things painted time and time again across the, the, across the globe. Uh, and, and it seems to be effective in some ways. Um, I thought that, you know, some of the support for, you know, recently in Israel, I thought that, uh, you know, people would have put themselves in a situation where they said, you know, maybe we need to question some of these things. I, I'm not seeing it. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, walking into these midterms where APAC is spending millions and millions of dollars in Democratic primaries, um, you're not going to see those types of things. I, I fear that you're, we're going to start seeing, you know, other sort of groups like that, uh, you know, interfere with uh, American elections in ways that will, will cause us to, to be a permanent war footing. 
Yeah, yeah, evidently so. Um, the, the most common response to the Bush gaffe uh, has been to psychologize it. Uh, and it. And it's kind of interesting how common that has been lately, given how much psychologizing we've had of Putin. Um, and the, the psychologizing has been that um, Bush must be so haunted by Iraq that even when uh, it's the worst possible moment, even when he's here on stage kind of getting his uh, credibility as a statesman back because he's part of this supposedly good war, the war of defending Ukraine uh, against Russia, even then he can't help but bring back the humiliation and bring back the crime. So it, it's seen as, as the kind of slip of the tongue of the neurotic haunted man. I, I, I think it's something quite different. I think that if, if we think of our, our own lives and our own psychologies, I think there are two situations in which people have that kind of uh, what Freud called parapraxis, that, that kind of um, that, that slip of the tongue, that moment of saying the wrong thing. Um, yeah, sometimes it's when we're thinking, don't say this, don't say this, don't say this, and then we accidentally say it because yeah. we're so like anxious about it. But the other time when we um, when we say the wrong thing in that way is when we just have nothing at stake in it and when we don't yeah. really care. That, that's when we lazily say uh, this hurtful thing uh, or this embarrassing thing. And I think it, it is much more likely that... Uh, that's what explains um, Bush saying Iraq when he should have said Ukraine, uh, because he knows that even if he gets up on stage and admits that the whole thing was an indefensible uh, and illegal war crime, uh, even if he gets up on stage and admits it, you know, it's, it's it's the Trump thing. I could shoot someone in Times Square. I, I can get on stage and I can admit the whole thing and the audience will just laugh with me. Uh, it's that complete audacity of power that knows that it ultimately can't be touched. And for me, really, it's a reminder that uh, one of the very good things that Trump did was simultaneously cut off the possibility uh, of uh, any kind of future electoral pro uh, prospects for both the Clinton crime family and the Bush crime family, because let's not forget that the Bush dynasty, uh, its um, kind of relationship to deep state crimes uh, did not start with the Iraq war. It didn't even start with 9-11, uh, depending on your interpretation of that. It event. didn't even start, didn't even start with his father. Uh, no. <laughs> his, his grandfather was involved in what they called the corporate coup uh, where they, it was in the thirties. They wanted to take over, uh, the United States government by military force through the Marines who had returned from uh, the war in the Philippines uh, yeah. under a general Smedley Butler. This is a, this is a true fact. You can Google this. This is not conspiracy theory. Uh, he testified in front of Congress about this and there was no one went to jail for it. It was a literal sort of Panamanian style takeover that was planned in the United States uh, there has been a, a number of, of, of things that his father was involved in prior to being president, uh, including possibly the execution of a president in the United States. Um, yeah. It's incredible. Uh, yet H.W. So Bush was, was there in Dallas yeah. when JFK. He's the only uh, man in America there. who doesn't remember where he was, <laughs> what he was doing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Kennedy assassination, he was there for Iran-Contra to clean up. Yeah. Uh, for for Reagan, uh, and well, yeah. took America. If you, into if you really want to to get deep into that, we, who is the the guest that we had in the past? Uh, who is the expert on the RFK and JFK shootings? Yeah, Peter Dale Scott. 
Uh, yeah. yeah, you you want to check back and listen to those. We did that about a year ago. Uh, yeah, well, I, I mean, since talking to Peter Dale Scott, really his interpretation of uh, the structures of American politics and the American state have only um, made more sense as uh, as the past year has gone on. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that whole history behind uh, Bush and the Bushes, you know, cut off with the... the um, demolishing of Jeb Bush in the 2016 primary, followed by the demolishing of Hillary Clinton uh, in the in, in the 2016 election. Uh, if Trump did anything good at all, it was um, it was cutting off this um, the, the, these appalling um, these appalling elites. Um, but yeah, th- there Bush was with all the audacity of power today, the fact that they can just say it, and the audience will laugh uh, along with them. It actually reminded me of, you know, speaking of Hillary, it reminded me of um, of a statement from her early on in the war, um, which actually had something of the same um, undertone to it. It wasn't her misspeaking, but still there was the same kind of smirk and that same audacity of power that will face no consequences even when it admits the but whole. remember, uh, the Russians invaded Afghanistan uh, back uh, in 1980. And uh, although no country uh, went in, uh, they certainly had a lot of countries uh, supplying uh, arms and advice and even some advisors uh, to those who were recruited to fight Russia. It didn't end well for the Russians. Uh, there were other uh, unintended consequences, as we know. But the fact is that. Jesus Christ, other uh, unintended consequences. I mean, that is so sort of perverse that, that, that she sat there describing um, uh, the Russian invasion of Afghanistan and making the comparison to the Russian invasion of Ukraine today, um, what, you know, just smirking her way through what the subsequent story of Afghanistan was and the fact that all the time, what we heard of um, with the, the U.S. invasion of, of Afghanistan, um, finally uh, uh, surrendered and withdrawn last year, was the comparison with Russia. That was the comparison, that the U.S. is making the same folly uh, that Russia had already done. Um, so, yeah, a, a, again, ju- just Hillary Clinton smirking her way through, uh, didn't Russia learn a thing or two about invasions uh, of this kind in Afghanistan? when? Um, her own, you know, the, the the U.S.'s own history is the identical one. So once again, j- just as with the, the Bush example, we're seeing um, elites just laying bare the complete absence of any moral credibility yeah. uh, on, on, on questions of war. Yeah, and, and, and just a, a totally ignorance of, or totally, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's like five things I can, you can unpack from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first is the actual uh, relationship of the United States to Ukraine in supporting the people who ultimately caused the breakoff of some of these republics in Ukraine uh, with the, the Maidan crisis in 2014. Um, that was largely fomented by the United States, funded by the United States, armed by the United States. Under her watch, um, mm-hmm. you had... Uh, uh, Victoria Newland, who's back in back in power again in the United States, uh, working at the National Endowment of Democracy, um, talking about uh, you know 
how they were going to put their guy in. Uh, and it was a guy that was going to be more critical and push harder in these areas on the Russian population. And she said, fuck the EU, you know, in that relationship. Uh, that alone is a way that she, her own involvement should give her some sense of, uh, you know, uh, pause. Um, her support for the Iraq war, you know, uh, the, how she supported the Iraq war, in it, which is an identical sort of situation um, that we should have learned from. Her support of the war in Afghanistan, which, you know, she should have some culpability for. Um, and, you know, we can't, we haven't even mentioned Libya. Yeah. Or we haven't mentioned Serbia. Um, there was, after the Monica Lewinsky scandal, um, you know, right at the time when they had the Wag the Dog movie, many, many people will remember that there was a sort of manufactured crisis that was created to cover up a scandal for a president. Um, Hillary Clinton had not talked to her husband, I, allegedly, for two months. And she said, I will talk to you if you bomb Serbia. And there we were. And that was NATO. Yeah. Uh, you know. And that's before we get into like actually looking too closely at the analogy, because it, 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 in this um, case, the um, if we follow Hillary Clinton's comparison, um, the the Ukrainian freedom fighters are the Muhajadeen in in the yeah. comparison. So uh, again, all of um, America's uh, nefarious alliances of the past are suddenly being laid there as the central logic of this um, this supposedly kind of moral, totally moral crusade on the behalf of a people who have no moral problems whatsoever, and we're expected to totally ignore um, these uh, you know SS uh, badges and and, and tattoos <laughs> that, that so many of the troops are wearing. So one thing that I think is very funny to me is that there would be, it would be very easy, and there's a lot of discussion, and I'm, I'm not going to hit on the squad too hard, but I'm going to say that there's been a lot of discussion about neo-Nazis in the United States and the problems, and you know the president that is currently in office said he decided to run for office after he saw what happened in Charlottesville. Yeah. Right. Never again. That's something we say a lot. Never again. Uh, we have... A group, maybe a fringe group. I, you know, I, I can't get to the numbers. I don't really know what the depth of the of the infiltration of neo Nazis is, is into the Ukrainian government. Uh, but it's it's. I'm seeing a lot of pictures. I'm seeing them post a lot of pictures. It's not. This is not. This is not people nut picking. These. This is their yeah. own publicity. And we could easily put a rider in all this funding and say, Hey, you got to take the patches off, guys. Just. That's it. Yeah, yeah. it just take yeah. the patches off. You know, like anything. And we're not seeing even that level of sort yeah. of analysis or, or, or like, you know, I don't know, dignity. You've got blanket media coverage of this. Uh, and actually the, the the percentage of coverage dedicated to this war is significantly greater than it was uh, to the Iraq war, studies have shown. Mm -hmm. um, and you uh, these pictures are being shared and spread by a totally supine and compliant media so why is there not some sort of agreement that they don't film those guys yeah. uh, even if we take you know the the the, the minimalist um, assessments of how many Nazis there are in Ukraine just don't show those guys in that case yeah. but again it's the same thing as uh, why can why can W just you know have this slip of the tongue why can he just admit it there on stage because he knows the audience will laugh 
why can Hillary Clinton get into? Like, why are you bringing up Afghanistan? <laughs> if you're Hillary Clinton trying to sort of talk about like uh, uh, America's um, uh, greater moral credibility than Russia, why are you talking about Afghanistan? Because you can. Why are you showing us these pictures every day of, um, you know, guys with swastikas on their chests because they know that we'll keep eating it up. They know that we'll keep putting the flag in the bio. We know that uh, there is a kind of uniquely um, uh, one over body of compliance. And it, it simply doesn't matter if people dissent. I mean, that's what is in some ways um, slightly kind of quaint about the way that Keir Starmer has seized on this as a way to discipline the left and to silence any uh, kind of dis dissident talk on foreign policy, because he doesn't really need to. Uh, right now, the, the main kind of lesson is that power is audacious. Power can say what it likes. It can actually tell the truth in a way that previously we would only expect to read in some um, uh, uh, niche Stalinist magazine. Um, and, and there will be no consequences whatsoever. You are watching or listening to The Popular Show. Uh, and we'd like to remind you that if you want uh, us to keep going, if you want to support us in some way, you can either uh, get onto Patreon or you can drop us a one-off donation over on our PayPal. Uh, and um, I'm just going to say that we're very much enjoying your company. So we've got inflation, we've got supply chain problems, we've got food shortages, we've got babies that don't have baby formula to drink. Uh, it's looking pretty rough out there, David, I've got to say. Yeah. Uh, you know, as, as a father, yeah, I love, I, you know, I always, uh, I don't love saying things like as a father. Um, I think you should care about kids regardless if you have them or not. Uh, but it does give you some perspective. Um, and yeah. what if, you know, I, I, I spoke with someone in, uh, today in Canada who is, uh, you know, a big supporter of sort of the Ukrainian war, uh, you know, Atlantic reader and Applebaum reader, you know, loves that, hates Putin. And they said, you know, the juxtaposition of the lack of support for women and children in the United States, in this time of crisis, the lack of regulatory oversight, the, the fact that they have done nothing and will continue to do nothing to cure something that should have been fixed, you know, through any normal sort of country's approach to, to anything mm -hmm. um, is, you know, just lays bare that the empire is, cr is, is crumbling. And it says so much about where the United States is as a nation, um, you know, and I'm going to go off for just a second on formula. And I just, I, you know, as, a, as an no, American living in Canada, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> we, ha we have some choices. It, we do not have the same supply chain issues with formula now. My, my kids are off formula now. Um, but, you know, f first there's the issue is, is, you know, like there's no paid leave in the United States. So breastfeeding is not really an option in the same way it is in some countries. No, not everybody has that option uh, and not everyone can produce breast milk. And, you know, some people, sometimes there's, you know, two dads raising kids, you know, they're not going to suddenly produce breast milk. There, you know, there are uh, any number of situations where that's not an option. Um, that alone is is a problem. Uh, it's calculated that there's 1900 hours that would be required uh, where a woman would be breastfeeding their child. Um, you know, that that's that's a lot of work. That's if you, you break that down. Um, 
that that alone is a problem. But the other issue is that the United States has very poor formula to begin with because of yeah. its weakened regulatory state. European formula contains um, larger amounts of milk, uh, milk proteins, things like that. It's much more nutritious. It is available in some ways if you go through these shady brokers and things like that. But yeah, Canada, it, it's almost like a status symbol, right? Just like yeah. getting Italian Vogue. Yeah, getting, absolutely. Yes. Uh, yeah. Getting British <laughs> or, yeah. or, uh, or, French or or if you, baby if you have formula. Like gluten issues and you say, oh, well, the pasta mm -hmm. in Italy doesn't give me a problem. Right. You know, there's yeah. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and in Canada, which is we is had a longstanding free trade agreement with uh, with the United States. Uh, it's probably the largest state to state trade, um, you know, that, that travels across. We did an episode of the truckers discussing just how big that trade is and, and you know, mm -hmm. what, what that problems that caused. Um, you cannot actually import formula from Canada, even in a time of emergency, to the United States. We have plenty here. It's fine. I was just in a store today. Um, it's more nutritious. It's cheaper. It's better to do. They, we do import form, formula from uh, the United States that is more expensive, less nutritious, and full of more junk. Um what we're seeing today is, you know, the long-standing failure of the United States to give a shit about its people. And, um, you know, I, I, as an outsider, I don't know what you think about this, but I'm really curious. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's just a, a great, um, like, embodiment of, of the whole complete dereliction of duty, really. The fact that the, the most simple thing, the, the, the drink that kids drink, the only drink, that a lot of uh, babies can drink, uh, and uh, and and you couldn't even get it in. Uh, I'm, yeah, I understand it's getting better, but still, um, yeah, and and it's what it was being blamed on as well that was interesting to me. That all of these problems suddenly are being attributed to the the Putin price hike in this incredibly cringe um, slogan that one of the idiot uh, millennials that uh, apparently writes. Uh, Joe Biden's lines for him has has come up with. We all know that those supply chain problems and those uh, the, those uh, food supply problems were in the post. We were talking about them all last year, but suddenly uh, it's being attributed to uh, to Putin. Um, uh, we're going to talk about what what we think the, the major cause uh, is, and uh, and it's lockdown, and nobody's um, nobody's saying it. But let's just for a moment take them at their word let's take it that it is the putin price hike let's look at the cover story that the economist has got this week about the um the the, the uh, approaching global famine by invading ukraine putin will destroy the lives of people far from the battleground this is the economy uh, the, the economist lead story and on a scale even he may regret the war is battering a global food system weakened by covid-19 climate change and an energy shock ukraine's exports of grain and oil seeds have mostly stopped uh, and on it goes the widely accepted idea of a cost of living crisis does not begin to capture the gravity of what may lie ahead uh, if as is likely the war drags on and supplies from Russia and Ukraine are limited. Hundreds of millions more people could fall into poverty. Uh, I found that line really striking. If, as is likely, the war drags on. The lack of agency in that <laughs> phrase, if, if the war, the war, you know, oh, this, this war that's just out there on its own, if it continues to drag on, 
who knows why, then we're just going to have to deal with the fact that rich countries aren't going to be able to get specific items, even absolutely crucial ones like baby formula, uh, and the bottom is going to fall out of living standards in poorer countries altogether. Uh, 12% of uh, traded calories come out of this region. So yeah. for as long as there is no negotiated peace, for as long as there is no uh, getting around the table between Russia and Ukraine, that 12% of traded calories, even before we get to the blocks on uh, on energy, um, is, is simply not going to be there. Mm. So why then? And, you know, we're, we're not necessarily accepting the economist at its word that the primary cause for uh, these supply chain problems is the invasion of Ukraine. But even if we take it at its word, then suddenly... Uh, we should be thinking, well, if if this is because the war is dragging on, is there not even greater reason to be looking at this conflict from the point of view of finding an end to it as soon as possible? Mm. And yet that is precisely the opposite of the approach that we've seen uh, NATO countries uh, uh, taking to the conflict. And it's the opposite of what we've seen the, if it's possible, even more bloodthirsty and even more pro-war voices across the mainstream media demanding um, of their leaders. Uh, Zelensky himself um, has continually stressed that uh, the, the solution to this conflict is going to be a negotiated peace between the two countries where some kind of settlement is reached. There simply is no alternative other than fighting to the last Ukrainian uh, and completely ravaging the country. Uh, there, there are, well, I, I don't know what you're going to say the reasons for uh, Joe Biden to be speaking again, kind of off script, uh, about regime change or about Boris Johnson more or less saying that uh, negotiated peace might be good enough for Zelensky, but it's not good enough uh, for Britain. Um, th this this uh, continual kind of language of escalation, uh, this sense that nobody uh, in the West is interested in the war doing anything other than dragging on. Why? I think it's 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 interesting you know it's um in some ways it's the the the, the dog that caught the car um and many people have been using that analogy to discuss russia and the invasion of ukraine but i think it's actually the it's the opposite i think the west has finally gotten russia in a point where they can finally finish the job that started you know started with yeltsin it started with the you know the the support of the sort of soft coups in eastern europe um you're seeing the idea that there could be a competitive regime that's attached to the European market that, you know, exports to the Middle East, to exports to Asia, um, that that should be finally finished off. And I think that in many ways, because of the gerontocracy that we have in many of the Western countries, you're seeing a situation where these old cult warriors finally got the opportunity to finish the job. And I think that their concerns about the future, about, you know, the baby formula thing is very funny because it's, it's literally children. You know, if we look back to the COVID regime, it was literally children who were suffering at the expense of adults. We are living in the, the, the supreme reign of senior citizens. 
and it is not about life anymore. It's just about death. And I think that, you know, it's about you know, legacies and things like that. And I, I don't think you have governments anywhere in the West, you know, with, with the exception, I mean, there are some exceptions like places like Finland and, you know, in sort of Eastern Europe where they have some younger politicians who, who may be wise or not wise. Their politics may be weird. You know, I think, you know, especially in the, in the case of Finland, they're quite weird. Um, but you have a situation where people just cannot focus on the, the core job of government. Yeah. You know, they're, they're the CEO on the last year of their office, you know, and they, they're like, I want to put out a sports car. You're like, that's not what we sell. You know, mm-hmm. we're Chevy. We, mm-hmm. you know, we're just not going to do that. Right. But they, they're, they're not focused on the core mission anymore. Yeah. And, and tellingly, uh, it is young people who have the most skeptical view of um, the West's approach to uh, the, the 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 war uh, and have the most skeptical view uh, or rather the most even-handed view um, of um, the, the the mutual responsibility that uh, Russia and the West have for um, for what's going on right now mm-hmm. uh, that that's absolutely reflected we've got a huge um, a huge generation gap as far as perception um, of this are concerned and it's not surprising given um, where we find the, um, the, the the material interests uh, in play. So, yeah, I, I mean, e- again, what I'm stressing is even on its own terms, this is completely incoherent. Simultaneously, we've got the the the, the greatest kind of um, doom mongering predictions about um, a, 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 you know a, a cost of living crisis on a scale outside living memory. Uh, mm. Already, we've got inflation. That is worse than the 1970s, mm-hmm. which um, has has been the, you know, when there was the prospect of of governments led by Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders, that was always a threat. They're going to take us back to the 70s. Mm-hmm. Well, we are we are in the 70s yeah. as far as inflation is concerned. Yeah. And yeah, the 70s without the cheap college, without the ability to get a home, yeah, without all the good the, music, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> without yeah. the family structures intact. We got yeah. all the the seventies with none of the the good parts. Yeah, of, with, of with, yeah, no labor movement, none of the um, none of the safety net. Yeah, precisely. Um, so you know, given that, uh, all the same, and 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 given that the only um, the only uh, cause that governments are willing to point to is the war in Ukraine. Uh, why is it that these two things are not being put together? I think that actually it is, again, a kind of new way of thinking that we're seeing states engage in and compliant medias uh, going along with and promoting, uh, which is a kind of a kind of one one thing ism. We talk about um, latest thing ism, current thing ism, uh, the, the, the way that um, the attention economy drives us from one huge moral cause to the next. But I, I think that maybe is what, what is more uh, threatening or ominous about it is um, the way that COVID has trained us to think only in terms of one problem uh, that needs solving or that requires our attention. Uh, and all other forms of harm are relegated mm-hmm. below it. That was a, a new way of thinking uh, in terms of how widespread it became during COVID and how across political lines, across the political spectrum, um, it could be found uh, being validated in different ways. So if you were a, a, 
a professional um, or, or, or part of the expert class during COVID, uh, whatever your area of um, advocacy was, the way to get ahead during COVID was to relegate it below COVID, line up to say that my thing, whether it's um, hunger, whether it's domestic violence, uh, whether it's child development, my thing matters less than COVID. Yeah. Everybody was falling over themselves to do down their area of specialism uh, and to sign up to this, this new regime and this new focus. We've marched into um, the Ukraine conflict with that structure of thought in place so that we can say it, it doesn't matter that perpetuating this conflict is causing this absolute devastation throughout the world and is 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 going to be the the kind of um uh, the, the 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 tinder strike um of uh, a a new global famine actually that's fine because the main thing is ukraine and the moral force of this the moral force uh that ca that came when you said hang on it's not worth it. The cause is worse. Uh, the, the cure is worse worse than the disease with uh, with these lockdowns and these school closures. The moral force that came at you, if you said anything like that, the same moral force is there. If you say, you know, it's just not worth it. Uh, it's not. If the damage uh, that is being done by this is what you say, it's not worth it. Uh, and yet, the war drags on, and all of the momentum is towards making it drag on. You know, I, I think that one thing, and I, especially our European listeners should really think long and hard about. If you're listening to our show, uh, I'm going to assume that you do not want fascism to rise in Europe. I think we could all agree with that. Or, may, or maybe you do and, you know, just click that donate button and, uh, you know, we'll ignore it. But, you know, what, what we will say is that, you know, many people today regardless of their uh, political affiliation, can recognize that there was a, through 2014, 2016, and up until today, there's been a huge exodus of immigrants, migrants, uh, refugees from the Middle East and Central Asia. The reason has been largely because of war, but, but not just war, famine. The 2014-2016 Syrian crisis was the push out of people who were largely could have stayed and fought in a Ukrainian way, uh, they needed to eat and they needed, they needed to move. And people are not recognizing that that same sort of crisis, the number one ex, the number one importer of those that those staple crops from Russia and Ukraine, and now India, who is now banning exports of wheat, goes to these countries that do not buy premium wheat from from Western Europe or the United States. That's your Syria, your North Africa, all these areas where there's already a crisis of legitimacy in these governments. There's already a problem with food shortages. We're seeing this in Sri Lanka right now. There's riots in Sri Lanka. It's, it's, it's incredible. And if you think that the Ukrainian refugee crisis is an issue, imagine that coupled with the crisis of famine in these countries. This has never led never led and you can welcome people with open arms and you can have a plan and you can do what you can do but if you look across europe the rising of sort of fascist movements has corresponded directly with 
the inability to properly take care of and absorb refugees from these areas. This is going to lead to something bigger than we've ever seen and people don't recognize it. Well, we've got a lot more to talk about, uh, but we're at the point where we need to say goodbye to the YouTube audience uh, and encourage you to come over to our little podcast community over at patreon.com forward slash the popular pod. We're going to carry on talking now. We're going to be talking about the WHO treaty. Is it a treaty? Isn't it a treaty? It's an attempt to universalize uh, the principles that led the uh, the WHO's approach to uh, COVID-19 for future pandemics. Speaking of future pandemics, we're going to be talking about the monkeypox, and we're also going to be turning uh, our eyes to another big um, health story, this remarkable piece uh, in the New York Times this week about the Hearing Voices Network, the people experiencing psychosis who have decided to go off meds and simply live with the voices in their heads. You want to hear us talk about that? You want to join the conversation? Get over to patreon.com forward slash the popular pod. Otherwise, we're going to see you next week.